Do you want to win some money? I bet you do. Do you care about civil affairs? Yes, I know for sure, because you're listening to the show. Check out the call for issue papers. The new theme is campaigning and civil affairs. Some questions to answer include, how can CA contribute to campaigning? Beyond policy, what changes can better operationalize and integrate CA's role in campaigning? How would CA even measure progress in campaigning? And how would a full concept of the CA role in campaigning apply to conflict prevention, security cooperation, irregular, or gray zone warfare? So put that thinking cap on and submit your papers by Friday, 15 September. For more details, visit civilfairsassoc.org. Welcome to the 1CA Podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. 1CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with the partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassoc.org. I'll have those in the show notes. We're treating them like they're anecdotal. Yeah. Not that they're the most important thing. We're treating them like they're just there to be used. We treat them like they're not going to save our lives. Yeah. So <laughs> when I say you better build a relationship with your partner force like your life depended on it, that's because it does. Today, Dr. Joseph Long comes to the show to discuss his new publication, The Future of Conflict, How Super-Empowered Populations Will Change Warfare, which was published at the Irregular Warfare Initiative. Joe is a retired Green Beret and now a senior lecturer at the Defense Security Cooperation University in Virginia. I will have links to his paper and bio in the show notes. And so we learned a lot of the wrong lessons. Right in Afghanistan and Iraq, because we were doing this in a mature combat theater, where in reality, when you do this, it's not a mature combat theater. Mm-hmm. It's behind enemy lines in a country where it's a denied area, hmm. where no one's coming to get you. You were fighting to the death with the people of this culture on your right and left, period. Right. And if you don't think that's a leadership challenge, and you just haven't been paying attention. And all I want to do is raise awareness and have a start saying things like, let's figure out how we're going to lead these people. What's our leadership strategy? Just to have those kind of conversations in a nuanced way, it'll add a huge impact to our outcomes. Has your, I don't want to call it a crusade, have you <laughs> built, <laughs> have you started to build a platform? Are you starting to build allies in this effort? Are you getting an audience? How's the progress? Well, I mean, to be honest, it's, it's difficult. When you talk about it with other scholars and when you talk about it in units, the response you get is, what do the units want? Right. So here's the thing. If I'm asking the customer what they want, they don't necessarily know what they want. It makes me think of um, Henry Ford. Mm -hmm. When somebody asked him and he said something to the effect of, if if I asked the customer what they wanted, they would have asked for a faster horse. (laughs) We're generating new knowledge. I mean, this is what's great about being... And academic is we're out here trying to generate new knowledge that the force doesn't already know. If the force already knew it, I wouldn't have to generate it. Right. So we have to convince people that don't know that they have something to learn, that there's something to learn, that there's a way we can do it better. Right. And that's what I'm getting to. Where's your campaign? Like Frank Subchak, he'd be a great guy to partner with on forwarding this issue. Have you started 
engaging in some of the IW symposiums or the soft symposiums? Have you been able to work in the field doing some test operations, anything like that? Oh, yeah. When I was a JSOP professor, I spoke a lot about this. I would give presentations on partner force leadership about this other thing I call the liberator's dilemma, which is about sustaining the support of a population over time. Sure. And everybody likes it. So changing a culture, reshaping the way that special operators think isn't as easy as is finding the right people or talking about it a lot. Like it does require this network of like-minded scholars that are out there trying to do this. Right. So I'm also working on other materials to talk about what it means to be a general in, say, special operations in irregular warfare. Because I think generals in special operations need to be master relationship builders. They need to be masters of building networks and leading through networks of empowering people at the lowest level to work better with partner forces. Sure. And there's also other groups like Peace and Security Operations, PKSOI, Mm -hmm. who I think would be a good partner in your campaign, as well as CA, of course, because that's part of what we do. But also CIA. I was just talking to John Cassara about his time as an agent in the field, Uh and both him and Mick Mulroy, who was also a, a CIA field ops guy, both talked about how it's just them and a partner nation's force. And it was really all about that relationship. I'm just saying, I think that you might have more allies than you realize. That's one of the reasons I'm now up in the D.C. area, because I think that what I have to offer is bigger than just one part of the Army, which is a small part of the DOD. Right. Like It's, it's really more about everybody who works with partners and populations needs to understand that it's okay to lead differently and we need to raise that awareness um i I agree with you 100 percent, and that's exactly what the dream is it's just that i can't have a campaign where i can say line of effort one is we're going to do this line of effort two this three four and after we get to the end we're going to have achieved this it's a long-term culture change and we're changing a lot of organizations who have a culture that doesn't recognize that we need to change right We can't kill our way out of this. And we're going to get into more capers involving population-centric military operations. That's why I wrote the paper. And it doesn't matter if you're landing on an aircraft that's bringing in conventional infantry forces or you're landing in a helicopter with a small amount of special operators or anything in between. The population is going to choose who wins the conflict. And if we don't figure out how to get populations to connect with us, or if we don't figure out how to connect with populations, and we don't figure out how to lead through relational leadership, we're going to lose conventional wars, even though we're the we're the stronger military. Yeah, it's necessary to have a strong military, but it's no longer going to be sufficient. And I, I see where you're going with this, and it does it, at the advanced stage of relationship building. I mean, we've talked small teams and small populations. Your paper on the future of conflict, how super empowered populations will change warfare, seems like the far spectrum of that. Because now you're talking about how you as a partner nation are in collaboration, in sync with that force and its population in order to achieve a goal, some type of national goal. So I almost see this as the gold star of relationship building and military affairs. No, I wrote this paper in two and a half hours working at the Pentagon about six weeks ago. 
Okay, how much coffee did you have that day? <laughs> you're like, I'm going to do um, this. <laughs> I've been kicking around this idea. And honestly, I, it started out, I was going to write like a LinkedIn post. Sure. Somebody wrote something and I was like, I'm going to respond to that. And I started, you know, I was like, you know what? I'm going to write it in Word so that I can edit it and not look like an idiot when I post it. Mm-hmm. And then I started writing. And next thing I know, I spent two and a half hours and I laid out, you know, about eight pages. Right. And then I took it home and, and edited it, shaped it. And, um, and worked on it, but I've been working on the idea of the agency that a population has over the, the military actors that they engage with for a long time. Sure. Um, and part of it is I'm just I'm frustrated by being in the Pentagon and I'm seeing there's this idea, right? No one's saying it, but there's this idea that now that the war on terror is over, we can start thinking about air quote real war. Mm-hmm. And it's about control, it's about artillery and tanks, and we got a new tank out. And it's like getting back to talking about lethality. And I'm saying, as the guy that can see this, I'm over here kind of like wanting to pull the pull the cord and stop the train. It's not about lethality. We actually have an amazing amount of lethality that the United States military can bring to bear. We just have to know who to leverage it on. That's not the part that we're weak on. We're weak on the relational side. And the number one project going on at the Pentagon right now is this joint all domain command and control system. And it's essentially, how are we going to command and control all around the world across domains in real time? Yes. Not how are we going to, how are we going to leverage leadership across the globe in a decentralized manner? No, we're going the other way. We're trying to do the same thing we've always done, but better. We're asking for a faster horse. We have to start blowing the whistle. Like you have to write papers and we have to talk about it and you have to go out you know, and get on podcasts and have these conversations and have people that say, I've been doing this for 30 years, Dr. Long. I disagree and say, great. Now we're getting somewhere. Let's have that conversation. Right. And that's, you know, that's what we're trying to do. And it's hard because it's still a military organization. So people can still say, shut up, Joe, go sit in the corner, go sit in the corner and color, (laughs) you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, I will, but I'm going to keep writing papers and we're going to keep doing it because this is too important. Right. It's too important for us to think that we haven't figured out. It's too important for us to not lean in on what are the real lessons we can glean. Hmm. This is this is pursuit of warfare in another side, and it's not the side that gets the attention because it's not where the big dollars are. If we can start getting people to think differently about warfare, going back to the original, you know, saying that the mind is the most powerful weapon of all. If we start thinking about it, it's an education. We have to start educating leaders differently. Well, I think there is a big dollar difference here, too. I would disagree there because, yeah, it's not weapon sales. But if we're building a relationship with a partner nation's forces and it creates a long-term relationship or you know collaboration, that results in trade. That results in more weapon sales. That actually results in second and third generation sales and cooperation that is a much longer term profitable i guess is a good way to say it if you're thinking in the dollar and cents way i think you're right in investing on the population relationship side because what you're asking to get out of it on the end state is what you need it's going to be that support when there's a crisis and disaster and it's going to be a capable ready force that's able to respond it's a capable, ready for it. It's ready to respond. It understands relational leadership. This is why I got into diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. 
And, and a lot of my friends are like, what the hell, man? That just distracts us from real training. And I'm like, it doesn't. But, you know, this is what yeah. I would tell Green Beret. I was like, let's say there's two types of Green Beret. Let's say there's like city guys and there's country dudes, right? The country dudes are the guys that have like real tree camo on and they go hunting and fishing and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they come in all different ranks, right? So imagine you have an ODA that's all city dudes. Right. Well, city dudes are great at the personal negotiation. They're like, Hey, this guy's body language is off. He's lying to us. They're really good at that stuff. The country guys, they're, they're guys that are like, hey, man, the dude hiding in the bushes over there. Yeah. Because I'm used to finding deers, right? Yeah. Go figure out what that guy's up to. So if you had a team of all city guys, you'd be suffering from some of the, the skills that come from the country guys. If you had a team of country guys, mm-hmm. you'd be like, oh, man, they'd suffer at the, at the part of the negotiation. So you'd naturally go, you know what? what we want, we need to like mix these teams up a little bit, you know, like let's, let's try to balance it out a little bit better so that the team itself has more skills. And that's the same thing that the perception of people from diverse backgrounds brings to special operations. Cause the more people you have from more backgrounds, the more relatable somebody's going to be to that person that you're trying to connect with at the micro level. Hmm. If everybody is from Georgia and everybody looks and dresses and acts the same, you have a lot of people that think one way and you're really, really going to struggle. But if you have a team of very diverse people, you're going to increase the probability that you're going to understand the human domain at the micro level. And you're going to be able to connect with somebody in a way that's going to save your life. Right. So yeah, it's important. Okay. But how do we recruit? We recruit in ways that kind of say, if you look like me, get over here. And there's some things we need to think about. And, you know, I, I gave this part of this presentation at the Air Force Academy with some some Green Berets were in there from uh, Northcom. And one of them, you know, he's like a bald head, like really, really yoked up muscular dude. Right. Yeah. And he's like, oh, Dr. Law, I kind of disagree. I mean, I train whoever gets off the bus and, you know, I don't care who's on my team, but everyone's going to train and we're going to go out and fight together. And then he stopped and he goes, but now that I say that, I do admit that I've never had a black guy on my team. And I'm like, there you go, man. What I'm saying is we have to go out and find that diversity. We have to go out and find it because now we realize that that diversity is essential to us capitalizing on our new theory of partner force leadership, that we can't lead partners and populations unless we have people that understand them. Right. So let's put some thought into that. Let's put some money into that as much as we're going to put into the new tank or the new gun or the new widget or the new piece of technology. Let's start thinking about the relationships. Because at the end of the day, when the lights go out and you have no power and there's no helicopters coming to get you, what's going to save your life is the degree to which the partner force and its population gives a shit about whether or not you live or die. That's leadership. Right. So that's it. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. It takes, you know, an hour of, of talking about it to get there. But this paper, it's more about like the Ukraine population. Well, I'm using an example. A real-world example of someone who's doing it now? Yeah. Just to say, part of it is recognizing that the population matters. Everyone will say that. Sure. If I give you a a multiple-choice test and say, does the population matter, yes or no? I mean, everyone's going to say yes and turn it in and get 100, but that doesn't change our behavior. I'm trying to change our collective behavior. I'm trying to change our cultural understanding of, of how we interact with people. And that's part of it is recognizing that they do it. So. 
we have an opportunity right now to see what a super empowered population can do. Yeah, because that's what Ukraine's doing. That's exactly what I was going to say is it kind of shows you that option perspective that people probably wouldn't see without it. 100%. And then you go, so what? That's Ukraine, you know, good for them. We're killing Russians. That's great. And it's like, yeah, that's all interesting. What's more interesting is to say, look what that population can do. Now think about what could that population do to us if we don't figure out how to work with populations. And I think there's still enough people in the military that remember the struggle we had with stability in Iraq and Afghanistan. We had all the weapons. We were we had lethality, but we could not get outside the fob for very long without getting hit. You know, it was it was not a comfortable place to be. So there is an argument that we need to have better relationships with the population. What I see this paper as is a shining example to say, see, and it is possible to have a population totally rally in support of an effort. And now what I, I'm thinking is, is that step that we need to get from here, where we know that we alienate populations and we're, we struggle to get those relationships, how do we get to there? You know, how do we make those steps to get there? And some of the things we've brought up so far are keeping teams re-engaging with our partner nation forces so that they have a consistent engagement that the people that have been, that are in the back continue to participate in that relationship building as they're in the back, you know, with development and training and, and equipping. I'm thinking though that there needs to be also something that's larger than just small force engagement. Is it maybe the exercises where we need to start being a little more cooperative with forces in those type of environments in order to build that relationship? How do you see going from the micro to the macro? Well, yeah, we have to practice this skill, right? Yeah. So we have to first we have to teach people how to lead differently. That what being a leader means is not having all of the answers. It's about owning a process of interaction with other people in the human domain to where you can gain the collective wisdom of everybody to produce better answers. Then once you do that, we have to we so we educate it, then we have to practice it, and we have to reward people based on their ability to do that. So people who rise in rank of leadership in the special operations world, they ought to be people who have achieved higher levels of success in human domain, understanding, relationship building, relational leadership. And we should be different than, you know, our infantry and and combat arms counterparts. We should act different. We should look different. It's a different sport in a lot of ways. So we have to reward people on that. We have to create a professional education that pursues that kind of behavior and develops it. Would Soft then be a consultant to the main force on relationship building and who to work with and who not to on the field? Because if if we're not teaching infantry and we're not teaching combat forces on ground how to do these same skills and be leaders in the same way, there's got to be some type of translation. Soft likes to think that their job is to work with partner forces, elite forces. Right. And so soft tends to be kind of loath to work with regular forces. And they're like, that's what the SBABs do. Right. And, you know, and I get that. There needs to be a distinction. What the difference is, is that SBABs train foreign militaries. We're building a partner force from scratch. We're building like peasant revolutionaries. We're building like a partisan force. We're taking a group of farmers that have no military training whatsoever and turning them into a formidable force of rebellion. That's a leadership challenge that you can't just assign to an SVAB. 
Sure. Military forces from great states have done advising mm -hmm. for 10,000 years. I mean, we had French advisors helping us in the Revolutionary War. That's not special operations. The special operations is creating from scratch this other group of people. That's why you have to know your business, but you also have to know how to lead in a different context. I get that. I'm just saying that, as you see in the Pentagon, if you stick to just the soft having these great relationships and it doesn't incorporate the rest of the force in that, then it's going to die at a certain level. Sure. It's going to die when it becomes part of the larger force collaboration with that partner nation. And so there's going to have to be some transition or soft's going to have to liaison in order to forward that relationship so that main force can cooperate, not cause the people that you've been training with to become polarized and then um, actually opposition. <laughs> well, absolutely, right? Creating a soft culture in another country that kind of pushed back against the greater military culture is not very helpful either. Right. <laughs> you know, you don't need their version of Green Berets running around with their pants down, pissing people off <laughs> either. Right. We need to have a group of people, though, that are masters of relationships. Yes. Of leading in very, very, very difficult circumstances where there's no one coming to get you, of leading without. You know, soft is so caught. Another thing that I'm interested in is soft's relationship with technology. Sure. Because we're so fast to take the newest toys. We should be trying to figure out how to lead without technology. Because that's where we're going to come alive. Because if we do ever have a major conflict, those toys are not going to be there. Exactly. You know. When I went out to kind of find and build my partner force in Afghanistan in 2004, I suggested, what if my team brought AK-47s? Mm-hmm. What if we went out there with AK-47s, the same gun that these guys have, and everybody was like, are you nuts? And I'm like, here's the thing. When we're completely different from them, we can't really bond with them. We can't really get them to say, we're here to help. We need to think about our signaling. And that all comes from understanding that this is a leadership thing. And what I love about it being a leadership thing is that when you're leading something, you're responsible for everything it does or fails to do. And when you're not leading something, then you're just trained, advised, assisting, and accompanying, and you're leaving out the part that makes leadership special. It's that responsibility. It's that we're in this together. So we're providing, you know, air quote, help, but we're not using the part that really matters, that inspires human beings. And that's leaving us with a void in our understanding of the human domain. And then the military didn't even want to create a human domain as a thing either. Right. Because we don't necessarily recognize that it's the next big phase of warfare. It isn't looking ahead 10,000 years. It's looking back 10,000 years and saying, how do we lead human beings that aren't like us? The story is illuminated by the current fight in Ukraine, and it's informed by our experiences in Afghanistan and Iraq. But the reality is, is that we have a lot to learn if we're going to be good at integrated deterrence, because that is nothing more than the three great countries on this planet who can build the biggest network of, of meaningful partners. Right. And we're not good at it. Because like you said, we can build a lethal force, but if China talks a country into voting to block U.S. trade in a country, well, that's it. <laughs> you can have as many weapons as you want. You know, international law now blocks U.S. from trading with that country. It's one without fighting. So you're right. It's going to be who has the network that wins. Yep. So this, this article is one piece of it. It's not everything. It's a, it's a small piece of it to create the overall puzzle picture to kind of lead us there.
And we just have to keep talking about it and start asking the questions. How can we do better? I still think there's a conventional side to it, though. I still do. I know, I know you're sticking to that soft argument. If you're successful in building leaders that are relationship superheroes, it will be critical for the main force, the conventional side, to actually take those courses as well and expand their skills. There is. So one of my friends was like, so are you saying that like all privates in the infantry need to get classes on how to build relationships? And he says it like it's ridiculous. And I was like, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Just knowing how to shoot, move, and communicate, just knowing how to, you know, bring fire and maneuver against the enemy, just knowing how to leverage lethal force, that's necessary, but it's not sufficient to be successful in the future of war. Especially when more conflicts are going to be in cities and large population areas. Absolutely, they are. Which is what the Marines are expecting. Most of their conflict fighting is going to be littoral and then heavy populations. And it's going to be working with people that are in developing countries, which typically comes with tribal societies that think about leadership differently. They think and act differently. And we can't try to build little Americas everywhere we go. We have to lead people where they are and make them the best at what they're trying to do. The American military is pretty small. We're going to have to train that military to value human relationships above everything else in order for us to be successful. I'm saying that as that's the fact. That's what I'm bringing to the narrative of future of warfare is that it's going to be much more relational than it's ever been. And if we don't understand how to leverage the relationships, then the best military might not be the one that wins. Right. Especially if we're not allowed access because that population is not allowing them. Yeah us to move or communicate because they're against it. Or, you know, if everybody's telling everybody where we are, you know, when we're trying to move through cities. And so my, in my last job, I, I found myself up in DC a lot. Right. At these um, warfighter engagements with Rand Corporation. And we were looking at, you know, the future of fighting in, in cities, right? The future of urban warfare. Mm -hmm. I'm the only Green Beret in the room. And immediately I recognized, and this was in like, you know, 2018, it was all about new toys. It was about guns that shoot around corners and foam that you can use to fill to fill pipes so people can't crawl out of pipes. It was how to do it better, but it wasn't how to think differently about it. We didn't talk about how to fight. We talked about how to fight the same way we already fight, missing the entire human aspect of it. Right. And we're still doing that. And now we're on this we're on this punctuated equilibrium where we're going from one way of fighting to the other. And my great fear is that we're going to just drop all of our lessons learned about the human domain and stop saying it and start thinking that it doesn't matter anymore. And I'm here to tell you it does. And not only does it matter, it's the most important thing. You know, this reminds me of Ian Bremmer. He had a TED Talk. <laughs> I, I actually use his uh, J-curve in a lot of my discussions because I think his J-curve is simple and it says a lot. But go ahead. Well, his TED Talk was that the next superpower is probably going to be corporations and technology. What he's saying is you're going to have the U.S., you're going to have China, probably India is in there, but then you're going to have this other power, which is going to be people who aren't really tied to a nation, run all of the social media and technology that everybody in the planet uses, and that they're not going to be regionally aligned. They're going to be more of a global government. Sure. And if that is true... That would make what you're saying more impactful because the populations 
would be using that network and that power to either support your effort and move it forward or actually to derail it. That makes sense to have that narrative of the importance of having that relationship and, and its effects in order to show the populations that it's important and that this mission that you're doing is critical. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, because I, I could see that being a real, a real stumbling block for a military force that, you know, is moving against popular support and getting exposed right and left, like you were saying. Yeah. We just learned in two decades that it's not how many people you kill. It's about killing the right people. It's about finding who the enemy is. It's about identifying your adversary and stopping them from doing what they're trying to do. And we're not good at that. Warfare is changing. Sure. For the advantage that being the most advanced military in the history of mankind brings us, that advantage is, is, is being eroded as we speak. Sure. Warfare is changing specifically to take that advantage away. And who's most likely to fill the void that the benefit of being in a strong state brings? From the United States perspective, if we're going to continue to get involved in international relations through expeditionary military employment, then we better really, really quickly wrap our minds around the fact that we're going to have to learn how to work with people that don't look like us in a meaningful way, which is why I use the word connectedness. Connectedness is going to be the source of military strength, and we have to figure out how to leverage it. Fantastic. That's a great wrap up. Yeah, hopefully you got some good editing stuff, but I enjoyed it, man. And I'm happy to uh, I'm happy to do more and come on and have these conversations with other people and get, you know, more multivariate debates going on because it's necessary. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have the email and CA Association website in the show notes. And now, most importantly, to those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations, thank you all for what you're doing. This is Jack, your host. Stay tuned for more great episodes, 1CA Podcast.